Church, it's so good to be with you all in the house of the Lord today. And today we're going to start a new series called Preaching the Kingdom. Off the back of Vision Sunday this past weekend, you would recall me mentioning that we would be speaking to many themes that relate directly to the kingdom, which is our vision for this season. I spoke about our kingdom mandate, kingdom principles, kingdom culture, kingdom readiness, and becoming kingdom representatives. These are but a few of the areas that we will be focusing on through the season. And as I began preparing my, my message this week, I felt led to start a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which I titled Preaching the Kingdom, because this speaks so strongly to church how the disciples of Jesus Christ are commanded by Jesus Himself through the sermon to live as kingdom representatives, creating kingdom culture while they are living in this world. Yes, they are heirs and citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, but until they get there, they are to be representatives that manifest the kingdom of heaven on the earth in different ways. And church, when I say they, and when I say disciples of Jesus Christ, what I'm really saying is us. If you are a born-again believer, this applies to you. The Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, on a normal day would probably take about 15 minutes to read all the way through completely if you didn't stop to ponder some of the amazing principles. But it'll take us a number of weeks to cover the importance of what Jesus is saying to His kingdom representatives through His longest recorded sermon in, in the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount has long been recognized by many great men and women of God as the sum of Jesus's, or for that matter, anybody else's greatest teaching ever recorded. Because in this sermon, Jesus tells us how to live, and He tells us what life should be like in His kingdom. So this is something that you and I really need to pay attention to. Someone once said that if you take all the good advice on how to live that's ever been uttered by any author or philosopher or psychiatrist or even a counselor, and if you took all the nonsense and boiled it down to its real core essentials, you would be left with a very poor imitation of the Sermon on the Mount. That's how significant and how relevant it is and life-changing it is for us. And before we get into the meat of the sermon preached by Jesus, I want to set some foundation for preaching the kingdom. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And let's read the first two verses. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then Jesus proceeds to preach this, this message. But church, if you take a step back and look at Matthew chapter 4, it shows how the multitudes began to follow Jesus and how he was impacting them in, in various ways. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, 
And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So the crowds were getting bigger and bigger, and there was a greater and greater press and demand on Jesus. But here in chapter 5, when he's about to preach the kingdom, he retreats up on a mountain and he begins to speak to his disciples. And I wondered, church, if Jesus didn't look at those multitudes following him and wondered to himself, do they really know what it means to follow me? Do they really know what it means to be a, a follower of Christ? Because let's be honest, Jesus wasn't interested in gathering a bunch of superficial followers. He wanted a group of people that understood that all that he was about, firstly. But secondly, he wanted a group of people who would be committed to him and the kingdom that he was establishing. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, as I started to explain a few moments ago, church, it's important to understand that when it says disciples in this verse, it's not referring to the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Sometimes the word disciples is used in the New Testament referring just to the 12, but other times it is used in a general sense, referring to those who were the followers of, of Jesus. In this verse, it is the Greek word mathetes, and it means someone who is a follower, a pupil, a learner, one tutored, but implying a closer relationship than mere information. So clearly it wasn't just the 12 up on the mountain with Jesus. There were probably a few hundred listening to Jesus explain what the kingdom of God was all about. And it's as if he was telling his disciples back then, and he's telling his disciples today, let me explain to you what being my follower is really all about as you begin to live out your kingdom birthright and inheritance on this earth. And church, what I want to be clear on this morning is that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't a secret message just for the few. Jesus isn't saying, okay, if you want to be my followers, come away with me into a cave and I'll give you information that nobody else is allowed to know. Church, the message of Jesus was never about that. He proclaimed it wherever he went. Right? He wanted everybody to know. Everybody must know that this is what my kingdom is all about. You want to be a kingdom representative? You want to be my followers? You, this is what you need to do. And in fact, he commanded us to do the same thing, to preach the good news of the gospel where, wherever we go. Because it's not just for us four and no more. It's for one and all. Amen? If you look again at verses 1 and 2, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Church, this is a figure of speech in the Bible used to make it known that something very important was about to be said. And the one delivering it was even more important. And you may be sitting there thinking at this point, okay, why is this so important, what Jesus is about to say? 
right? Yes, he's the one speaking it, but why is it so important? And why is it so distinctive from other sermons preached in the Bible? Well, firstly, because it is Jesus' words. But secondly, church, because it presents a radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel expected from the Messiah. You see, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't present the political or material blessings of the Messianic reign, which the Jewish people were hoping for at the time, to set them free from the bondage and slavery of their Roman masters. Right? That's mainly what they were focused on and what they were hoping for. Instead, church, it expresses to us the spiritual implications of what it means when Jesus Christ is the king of your life. Let me put it to you this way. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivers was to explain to us and to challenge us about what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus Christ, motivated by the heart rather than by the law. You have to remember in Jesus' day, religious leaders prided themselves on obeying the letter of the law. But that only produced a self-righteousness. Jesus comes along with a different approach. If you know me and you have relationship with me, you will be motivated to obey me because of this, this love relationship. Which means it becomes a heart motivation, a heart obedience, rather than a legalistic obedience. Does that make sense? And church, that's much more valuable. That's much more real when you have a heart motivation rather than a, a legal motivation. And church, this is a posture of the kingdom and its culture. And so Jesus is going to explain through this sermon that if you want to follow me, here's the ultimate standard. If you really want to have a relationship with me, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to be a kingdom representative, this is what is going to be expected of you. Which brings us, church, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Who's heard about the Beatitudes before? You must have a good attitude, you're right. So let's read from verse 3 together and then we'll get into the detail. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Church, as we look at these Beatitudes this morning, I just first want to lay out four general principles about the Beatitudes so that we know what we, we're heading into here. And here's number one. These eight character traits that identify true followers of Jesus Christ, let me say this, church, they are not multiple choice. It's not eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? It's not like you're reading an a la carte menu from your favorite restaurant. You just say, I want this one and I want that one, but I don't like these. You can't read the Beatitudes like that. And think to yourself, I don't like some of these. This is a package deal. 
right? This is not like an a la carte menu. This is like you going to macro and you just want one uh, tin of uh, baked beans, but you're going to get all eight of them, whether you like them or not, right? This is a package deal. This is the deal with the Beatitudes. Number two, they are progressive in intensity. You'll notice that it starts out with blessed are the poor in spirit and ends with blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He's going to start out with you need to come to me, approaching me with an understanding of how poor you are in spirit. That's where it begins. But at the end, at point number eight, he's going to talk about people who are persecuted for their faith. And so it needs to be seen as a package deal and it needs to be seen as progressive in intensity. Number three, church, it's important to realize that these character traits open the door to our inner happiness. And I'm not talking about some weird inner peace or trying to find your inner lake. I'm talking about inner happiness, okay? The word beatitude translated literally means blessed. And Jesus is going to say at each of these beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Right? And by the way, church, this is the only time that Jesus repeats a word as many times in any of his teachings throughout the Bible. And each character trait opens the door to inner happiness. And that word blessed can literally mean in the Greek, oh, how blessed or oh, how happy are the men and women who follow me in this way, in this way, and in this way. And the fourth principle before we look at these Beatitudes is that attached to each character trait is a corresponding promise. As we go through these, you'll notice that it says first, blessed are... It talks about what the character trait is, and then it says, for theirs is, or they will. And then he attaches a promise of some kind. And so church, he's not just saying, you're blessed if you do this. He's saying, you're blessed if you do this. And by the way, here's the promise, because of your faithfulness in these areas. So here's the first beatitude. The first one he addresses are the poor in spirit. In verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, what he's saying is, Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, just to be clear this morning, he's not talking about material poverty here. He's talking about spiritual poverty. Those who are poor in spirit, not poor materially. And what Jesus is asking us as followers of his is to come to him first with the understanding, church, of how destitute we are in our spirit. And that every single person that comes to Jesus sees their need for Him, they are aware of their sinful condition, and just how impoverished they are spiritually. And so basically what he's saying is that happiness begins when we see our emptiness, how poor, poor we are in spirit and receive His fullness. Right? That's what he's saying. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And then the promise attached to this church is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a significant promise, right? That's the ultimate reward. And this is something that we need to get excited about. The ultimate reward for those who come to Christ, beginning with being poor in spirit, seeing our own destitute sinful condition, is that we will enjoy heaven one day. That's our ultimate reward. Amen? 
Now, just a quick observation I want to just point out to you this morning. In the Bible, there are two phrases that are sometimes used interchangeably. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. In this passage, he refers to the kingdom of heaven. And the difference between the two, church, is, is basically this. The kingdom of God is about God's rule in your heart and in your life. Yes, it's much larger than that, but individually speaking, the kingdom of God is when the Lord rules and reigns in your heart and in your life personally. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 17. Jesus was speaking, and it says in verses 20 and 21, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, church, as a follower of Christ, I submit myself to my king, who is Jesus. And now he dominates my life. I am subject to him as part of the kingdom because every kingdom has a king and has subjects of the king. And when the kingdom of God comes into my life to rule and reign, that means that I am subject to him as the king. I surrender my life to him. He's in charge. He's in control. He's Lord, and I serve and follow him. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, on the other hand, church, is where God reigns. I mean, heaven is a real place, right? And heaven is the ultimate reward for those who know him and who love him. And that's where we will ultimately go. Yes, the Bible talks about there being a new heaven and a new earth, but this is the ultimate destination. And this is the promise of those who love the Lord, and that begins by being poor in spirit. And then he goes on, verse 4, Beatitude number 2, and he addresses those who mourn. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So he talks about those who are, are grieving. And church, he can mean this in one of two ways or in both ways. He might mean those who are mourning, excuse me, or are emotionally grieving. Because we go through stuff in life, right? Like the loss of a loved one, a personal hardship that we might be facing, and, and the list goes on. But as followers of Christ, church, this should never be wasted. Because, church, if you've been through horrible and difficult times, that builds a character trait in you through the suffering that you otherwise wouldn't be able to develop without the suffering. But... In other words, sometimes that suffering that we go through in this lifetime is like us being forged and molded into something unbreakable and something that will penetrate the kingdom of darkness. You know, I get a picture in my mind of God being the blacksmith and we are like the tool or the weapon in His hand on the anvil. And He's shaping us and He's molding us and He's hardening us. And that process goes on until He can see His reflection in that metal, Right? But that comes through intense pressure. That comes through intense heat. That comes through suffering. But Jesus says, hold on, because, because I'm doing something special in you. The other aspect, church, could mean just simply spiritually mourning. 
In other words, you know, coming to Christ involves a dying to self. Who knows what I'm talking about this morning? And in the dying to self, there's like a grieving process that takes place. There's somewhat of a grieving process when you leave the life that you used to live, the friends, the way that you used to live, and you come into relationship with Christ. Let me give you an example. When your best friend that doesn't like the fact that you don't drink and swear like a trooper anymore now moves on to other friends, that's not an easy thing to face in your Christian life, is it? Come on, who knows what I'm talking about this morning? Am I the only one that wasn't perfect before? Even letting go of your fleshly desires for material things or physical pleasures, there's a dying to self and there's a mourning process. Now you kind of understand why you go through these things, right? But church, the promise here for those who are mourning emotionally or even spiritually is that they will be comforted. Not they may be comforted, they will be comforted. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort which with we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And so what Paul is writing there, church, is that God is not unaware of your suffering and the serious things and the pain that you and I go through. And so He will comfort us. But then Paul says, once we are comforted, we need to comfort others who are going through, through similar things. Because we now understand and we can comfort them with the same comfort that we have received from God. This is kingdom culture. And this is what it means to be a kingdom representative. The third quality trait that he mentions here in verse 5 is, is meekness. He says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, church, let's just clear something up today. Meek does not mean weak. Meekness is not weakness, right? Sometimes people think, you know what, if I'm just like this quiet and, and subdued person, you know, like this, this scared little puppy, and I walk around all meek and, and hunched over, that's meek. No. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was the meekest man that ever lived, but there was absolutely nothing weak about him, Right? And so let me put it to you this way. Meekness is not thinking less of myself. Meekness is thinking of myself less. Let me say that again. Meekness is not thinking less of myself. Meekness is thinking of myself less. In fact, Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 and say, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And so he commends us for being meek. And I want you to see the meaning of the Greek word for meek. I don't have it up for you there, but I'll read it for you. It's the word praus, and it means, listen to the church, it means exercising God's strength under his control. That's powerful exercising God's strength under his control. Jesus is saying to us, this is a character trait you must have if you want to follow me, 
you must be meek. And the promise for those who are meek, church, is for they will inherit the earth. Wow. And what he speaks of there, church, is that we will enjoy whatever portion of the earth that we are given here. Yes, we will enjoy that. But more specifically, he's referring to us inheriting the millennial kingdom. When the Lord returns, the Bible says he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years and he will return to the saints and we will rule and reign with him. This is part of our inheritance. And this is what he's speaking about. Beatitude number four, and I think this will be the last one we'll cover today. In verse six, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For they will be filled. Amen. Now, something I want you to notice here is that the first three Beatitudes, church, were about emptying yourself and, and dying to yourself, right? Poor in spirit, mourning, and, and meekness, right? That's a kind of emptying of yourself and, and dying to yourself. But here in the fourth Beatitude, he's talking here about getting filled up. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness means I want more and more of his righteousness, right? Now, as, again, as I said earlier, there are two types of righteousness. One is obeying the letter of the law. That produces a self-righteousness, which can often become judgmental. That's the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees pursued in Jesus' day. They prided themselves on obeying the letter of the law. In other words, I'm a really good person because I follow all the rules and regulations. But we know that's not possible, right? No one can do that. Nobody can live up to all the rules and regulations, and yet God has given the law to expose our inability to live up to it. Now, just by the way, church, that's not a free path to do whatever you want to do. That doesn't mean, you know what, well, because I can never really live up to the moral aspect of God's law, I don't have to live up to it at all. No. He still wants you not to steal, not to kill, not to commit adultery, and all those important things. But the intent of the law was to expose our inability to live up to the standard of God. Why? So that we would cry out for a Savior. So listen, church, nobody can fulfill the whole law. I mean, let's be real with each other here this morning. How many commandments did you break this last week? How many commandments did you break on your way to church this morning? I mean, just think about the everyday ways, church, that we sin and how the law is somewhat of like a mirror that exposes our behavior and our true self. And that's why we need to cry out for a Savior. So self-righteousness comes by trying to obtain a righteousness through obeying the letter of the law. But the kind of righteousness that Jesus wants us to pursue is the kind that can only be given to us as a gift because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did. And the Bible says that if we trust Christ, that he paid the price for our sins, that he died on the cross for our sins, and I cannot live up to the letter of the law, try as hard as I might, I will realize my need for a Savior. I need someone who will have mercy on me. I need someone who will forgive me and someone who will pay the price on my behalf because I wasn't able to live up to the letter of the law. And that's why it's all about Jesus. Can we just give him a shout of praise for a moment? 
The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So church, God's righteousness is a gift. It is imputed to us. It is credited to our spiritual bank account, so to speak, by faith versus us trying to make ourselves righteous by obeying the letter of the law. Amen? And so this is the kind of righteousness that we ought to pursue more of Him, more of Jesus. And church, to be right with God is what righteousness is really all about. And so the promise for those who pursue righteousness is, for they will be filled. When we hunger and thirst for more of our Savior, church, He will fill us and fill us and fill us again. Church, we're not going to have time to cover more of the Beatitudes today or, or carry on with the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do that next time. But as we close this morning, as you leave here today, and as you go into this next week, I want you to consider what it means to be a kingdom representative. If Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you, and then he preached what about that kingdom in such a specific way to his followers, then I think that as his followers today, we really need to sit up and pay attention. And I want to encourage you, church, that as we go through these, this series, to take these words of Jesus as if they are being spoken to you personally. And guess what they are? If he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, then work that out in your life and what that means for you and how you need to approach Him and life for, life for that matter, knowing that you are nothing without Him. If He says, blessed are the meek, learn to apply the principle of meekness, not by thinking less of yourself, but by thinking of yourself less, and with the mind that you are exercising God's strength under His control. And if He says, church, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Wake up every morning hungry and thirsty for more and more of Him, and He will fill you. I would say to you this morning that God is not a man that He should lie. Amen. Can we receive that word this morning, church? Can we start to think about what it means to be a kingdom representative on this earth so we can impact those around us and start to impact culture? But church, and I was thinking this morning in my time when I was preparing and praying this morning, I was just thinking, how great is our God? How great is our God that He's given us this opportunity to be a part of His kingdom, to be citizens of His kingdom? 